Hello, welcome to the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church Shrewsbury. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. in Southern York County, Pennsylvania. You can join our morning live stream on Facebook or YouTube. Just search for GFC Shrewsbury. You can find more information about us at gfcshrewsbury.org. We are so excited to bring you this message today, and it is our hope that you will come to know and believe Jesus Christ more fully through it. Jesus, I thank you for family. I thank you that I believe when most people walk into the building of Grace Fellowship Church, they feel at home. They feel like this is their family, and they feel that because that's how you made it to be. We're brothers and sisters, your sons and daughters. I pray that we would feel that in this moment. I pray as we study your word that you gave us to instruct us in this life while we're here for our short moment, that you would just illuminate this to us in a new way, in a fresh way, in a way that would uh, have us leave understanding something fresh as well as wanting to live our lives the way that you would have us do it. Would you, God, via your Holy Spirit, illuminate these things to us? Would your word stand, my word fall, and all of our opinions not matter compared to yours? We pray all these things and all God's people said. First service sang. Y'all want to sing real quick? Come on now, amen. Come on now, amen, amen, amen. Now I just want to tell y'all something if you didn't know. The Bible does say that all of your amens are yes in Jesus. So if you aren't comfortable saying or singing amen, y'all better get on that yes train. You know what I mean? And it's okay if you're not on the train. You can jump on whenever you want. We can try again. We're not going to try again. I'm not trying to make all y'all feel awkward. But God is, I got to tell you a quick story. I, wasn't, I, I said I wasn't going to tell the last service either. I always say I'm going to come up here and not do a bunch of goofy stuff, and that's never how it goes. All right, we got to let the spirit flow. All right, I was in Guatemala once. If any of you know Joe Restuche, he's one of our elders here. I actually met him in a Guatemalan airport. Talk about small world. We went to the same church. I didn't meet him until we were in Guatemala on missions, separate missions trips. Anywho, we are in the baggage claim in Guatemala, okay? Now, let me ask you, what are baggage claims good at not doing? giving you your baggage, all right? I don't know why we call them baggage claims. We should call it, where's my baggage claim? So we're sitting there. We just flew into Baltimore from Guatemala, and go figure, our baggage isn't there. And uh, some of us were frustrated. It's been a long trip. We've been working hard, all right? And the flight's long. And we're frustrated. One of our leaders, we had some really God-inspired people on that trip. I loved it. His name was Josh. And he could sense the frustration. That's what good leaders do. They lead their flock. I was part of the flock. And he's like, y'all, we are blessed to be alive. Let's sing. <laughs> We're in the middle of the baggage claim, bro. There are just Guatemalan people, people from I don't know where, all kinds of people around us. And he's like, We're going to sing. And he starts singing exactly that. Amen. And then the whole group starts singing. There's probably 50 of us. Maybe I'm over exaggerating. 32. There's 32 of us. All right. We just start singing this amen melody or chorus or whatever for my musically inclined people. And like the whole airport's looking at us and none of us cared. It was amazing. We never got our baggage, though. <laughs> just kidding. It came like two minutes later, y'all. We get so mad about nothing all the time. But we were just praising the Lord in the middle of that airport. All right. <laughs> we're about to read a lot of Bibles. Here's what we got to do. When we study the Word of God, it is a ride. I hope you get excited about reading the Word. There are many reasons that as we study this passage, like Jesus gets feisty in this passage. So we need to get feisty about reading the Word of God. So what we're going to do is before we read all this, again, not all at one time, don't freak out. We're going to buckle up for this ride. Everybody grab your metaphorical seatbelt. Come on, come on, come on. 
unisonly, that's not a word, we're going to click this thing. Ready? One, two, three. Click. We're ready. Here we go. Before we open up, uh, I, I want to make a, a contrast to kind of preface this, because what we're about to talk about, um, I thought was very similar to what I taught last time. So when I taught last time, I talked about the woman at the well, all right? And it was fresh after this experience with the woman at the well, and the disciples come, and they're like, yo, Jesus, you need some food. And he was like, I have food you know nothing of, right? And we broke that down a little bit, and we'll kind of touch back on it briefly. So when they gave me this passage, the metaphorical they, the powers that be. Um, I was like, dude, <laughs> last time I talked about food. Now I'm talking about bread. Like, y'all trying to say something to me? <laughs> like, is there an innuendo here that, that I don't understand? Um, I did actually ask that for real, though. And as I was studying it, my first thought was like, man, he's saying the same thing. Like, why, why are we teaching this again when he's saying the same thing to just to different people or whatever? And I realized as I studied it that so often we read things out of the Bible, think it's redundant, think it's not worth our time or whatever, and then when we really study it, we realize he's saying entirely different things, right? So I want to encourage you, if you ever read the good book and you're like, what the heck am I reading? Like, pastors do that too. <laughs> we're like, what is this? And then we go to another pastor and they're like, I don't know. <laughs> Let's ask somebody else. as wiser than us. Here's the contrast I want to make between the two passages uh, in regards to kind of this idea of food and then being the bread of life, which is what we're going to talk about. Um, he says to the disciples, I have food you know nothing of. And then here he'll call himself the bread of life. There's two primary contrasts, and then I'll explain them. First is a similarity. So just two chapters later, he uses uh, this same analogy of food as to who he is and why we need him and how he's the only thing that's ever truly going to fill us. Well, then the primary difference in this passage is that he's talking to an entirely new audience and, in fact, a much bigger one. So the first audience back at the woman at the well was his 12 disciples. That was it. In which they're already following him. They already trust him. They already believe in him. But they're missing the point of what they should be doing. Jesus speaks to them then on, on how the harvest is ripe and how the food that they're really uh, in need of is actually doing the Father's will. Well, then the second audience, which we're about to read about, it's a large crowd of people. We read the miracle of the feeding the 5,000. It's a lot of people, y'all. It was like a rock concert. It was like a Toby Mac concert. It was a Chris Tomlin concert. I don't know which one's bigger, probably Chris Tomlin. It's a Chris Tomlin concert of people. And what we can assume about this group from knowing the context is that it's a, a, a mixed group of people. So the Passover fest festival had just happened. It says that in this passage. So we can uh, assume that it's a lot of Jews. There's probably a lot of Jewish leaders. But due to the context of this festival, we also can assume there's unbelievers, there's unreligious, there's religious who maybe haven't accepted Jesus as the Messiah yet. Uh, there was, again, Jewish leaders and Jewish people. And they all come in this passage because they are curious of who Jesus is. It's a word we're going to focus on a lot. They're curious about who Jesus is. And what I think we can do as we kick this off is creatively break down the difference in what he's saying to these two different groups in what I'm going to call do and don't statements. Do and don't statements. So when talking to the disciples in the earlier passage who already believed in him, he says, do be filled by doing the Father's will. Do lift your eyes and see that the harvest is ripe. And do love your enemies if you want them to know Jesus. Three do statements that we talked about. And I think Jesus said this to his followers, a.k.a. many of us, because they had in some ways already overcome the doubts about who Jesus was. 
So now the job wasn't about what they shouldn't be doing anymore. The job was actually what they had now to do about it. But for this crowd, as we said, it's a mixed group. So, so a lot of them, probably in some ways, probably all of them, weren't over these doubts yet. They weren't at the same place that the disciples were. They hadn't realized yet who Jesus was. Listen, they were curious, but not committed. Curious, but not committed. Therefore, instead of telling them what they had to do, Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, tells them what not to do so that they don't miss him because they weren't there yet. And these are what I'm going to call, oh, oh, three don't statements. The three don't statements. Now, an important clarification is that this holistically, like this passage we're about to study, it's geared towards maybe like uh, someone who's curious about Jesus, not committed. So maybe an unbeliever, someone who's kind of on the fringes looking in, they're like, this is interesting to me, but I'm not totally there yet. It's geared towards that person, but I think it's equally relevant to someone who's been walking in the faith for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years plus, and if you're in the plus, praise God for you, that hadn't fully committed, but I think it is relevant for us. The reason being is some of us, whether or not we know it, are in the faith, but maybe we're only curious about that next step of faith. Maybe we're only curious about investing in those hard people. Maybe we're only curious about serving at church. Maybe we're only curious about better habits, only curious about letting go of that sin we know we shouldn't be holding on to, but in those areas we haven't committed yet. So while Jesus is about to talk to a crowd of curious people, how many of us in our faith walks are just curious in so many ways rather than committed? I think it's just as relevant whether you are a new believer, an unbeliever, or a seasoned believer in this room right now. I think these don't statements that Jesus teaches to the crowd can help us commit in the areas where we're just curious. So let's get into it. 22 through 27, if you've got your study books, bang, bang, pop those out, your Bibles, open them things up. If you do not have one of these, they are out in the lobby. If you think you're going to be rocking with us for a minute through this John series, y'all, we're going to be in this for a hot minute yet. All right, that wasn't a good flip. It wasn't a good example. There's a lot of pages is my point, all right? 22 through 27 is where we're kicking off. Here we go. It'll be on the screens for you. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Pause. Little side note that has nothing to do with the message today, but it's really, really, really cool. We got to read scripture for like the, the wholeness of it. So we just studied last week how Jesus was out walking on the water. In the book of John, it says he retreated to the mountainside and the disciples left. And then all of a sudden we just see this scene where he's walking on water. I don't know about y'all, but sometimes when that stuff happens, I'm like okay, I need a little more. I need a little more than you just tell me my man was surfing giant waves. I need a little bit more. I'm pessimistic on the inside, all right? Well, look at the very next verse. We go to the entire crowd of 5,000 people, and it says they noticed that Jesus hadn't gotten in that boat with them. It's a whole different group confirming the story. It's the little things like that in the Bible that we got to catch. That's super, super cool. Anyways, continue. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. That's massive. They were seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them. He like totally ignores the question. I love it. Jesus answered them, truly, truly. Anytime he says truly, truly, he's basically like, 
peep what I'm about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work. Don't. It's the first don't statement. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. The first don't statement that I think he's getting at is this. Don't seek Jesus for the wrong reasons. Don't seek Jesus for the wrong reasons. Last week, Matt briefly touched on this if you were here, and he kind of alluded to this idea of how the crowd didn't get it. That's how he worded it. The crowd didn't get it. And I think Jesus, in the encounter with the crowd after they didn't get it, kind of takes it to the next level. And he's basically saying this, like they see this, this amazing miracle, the crowd does. And it was so crazy that it even says that other boats start showing up to see what was going on. Like, that's a little piece we miss. Like, I, I don't totally know where Tiberius is, I'm going to be honest with you. But like, wherever it was, these people were like, we heard something crazy happen. And it says other boats start showing up. So like, not only was the crowd like, holy moly, what just happened? Other people are starting to show up on the scene because they're like, like, world travels fast. You know what I'm saying? They didn't have the internet back then. I don't know what they had. Something fast, though, apparently. Some dude who could run a million miles an hour. Then it continues, and it says they are looking for him after he did this, and when they saw that he wasn't there, they even got into their own boats seeking Jesus. Now, that's a pretty intense version of seeking. Like, they were going the whole way. Not many of us have jumped on a boat to seek Jesus. Some of us showed up to church this morning. (laughs) We're so happy you're here. Hello. But they got in boats, you know what I'm saying? I don't know if the church was on the other side of the sea or what, but they got in boats to go seek Jesus, And then what does it say? They find him. And that shouldn't surprise us. Why? Scripture literally tells us, seek and you shall find. This is just another way scripture backs itself up. They sought after Jesus. They found Jesus. But per the normal scriptures, right? But when they get there and they find him, Jesus then says this massively important thing out of verses 26 and 27. He says, he answers them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. He's saying, listen, like, hear me now. You're seeking me for the wrong reasons. Like, it's good you're seeking me, but you're seeking me for the wrong reasons. And verse 27 literally says, do not do that a don't statement, because he doesn't want them to miss who he really is. He doesn't want them to miss what's so important. And he's saying, if you, if you seek me for these things, it doesn't even matter if you're right in front of me, you're never going to truly find me. This crowd was face to face with Jesus, and he was still claiming to them, if this is why you're seeking me, you're never actually going to find me. Doesn't matter how close you think you are. Doesn't matter how many church experiences you have. Doesn't matter if you show up every single Sunday. If you seek me for the wrong reasons, you're not actually going to find me. I think what he's doing is he's putting a strong message out to us and to this crowd that if we seek Jesus for the wrong reasons, we will never truly find him. We will never truly find what we're looking for. And throughout this passage, he's saying, listen, you need me, not what I can give you. So many of us, I think, at times pursue Jesus for what we think he can give us. And he's saying clearly to this crowd, you're here for the wrong reasons, and because of that, you're not going to find me. But I'll touch on that in a little bit. I want to give you some statistics. You know I like numbers. If you've ever heard me teach, I think numbers tell a story. Got to be the right numbers, though. Do your research, all right? This is from the Pew Research Group. 
This is a, a massive survey of the top most important reasons that people attend church. Now, I just want to be clear. It's not a pie chart of like, let's get to 100%. It's like they took all the top answers and how many people said them. All right, so here we go. I was pleasantly surprised by number one. I can't lie. Do you ever Google something with an intent? Y'all know that you'd be doing that because you want to prove a point. So you Google something with a certain verbiage, hoping to get the exact answer you want, which is not how you argue something effectively. Well, I Googled this, like, I want to hear the negative things about why people go to church. I'm going to be honest. It's not what I, well, it was what I got, but not the first one. This one's cool. 81% of people said to become closer to God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you guys win. All right. That's a good one, to become closer to God. If you come to church, get closer to God. All right. We're at a good start. Let me give you some more, though. The second most popular reason, 69%, to build children's moral foundations. 68%, to make me a better person. 66%, comfort in times of trouble or sorrow, to find comfort. 59%, uh, I find the teachings helpful. 57%, to find faith community. 37%, to continue family's religious traditions. 31%, religious obligation. 19% to socialize. And y'all, I swear on my life, this last one was on the list. I did not add this. 16% to please a spouse. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, oh my gosh, we're the 16. <laughs> we're glad you're here, 16. <laughs> Some of you are like, we're only dating, Phil. Okay, I'm trying to make that happen. All right, well, you're still the 16. Now, like to break down each quickly, most of, some of these aren't inherently bad things, right? I think with the right context, with the right focus, they're good things. Faith community is a good thing. Like wanting your kids to have a good moral foundation, that's a good thing. What I want to clarify, though, is without Jesus as the forefront, they're all bad things. Because we're seeking Jesus for the wrong things. So, so children's moral foundations, if all we ever do is want our kids to have good morals, that's not getting them into heaven. That's not getting them into a relationship with God. If we come to church 68% just to be a better person, the Bible says it's never been about your works that you can boast. It's always been about the grace of God. Comfort in trouble and sorrow. The church is built for that, but it's not the ends to the mean. Jesus is the one who does the comforting. So if we aren't seeking Jesus, we're only seeking Jesus for comfort and trouble, we're missing him. Helpful teachings, y'all, we... We are effectively useless if you come here and don't know Jesus. We're going to try to get you to know Jesus. But if you are looking for me or Mark or Ben or Jeff or whoever and not Jesus, you, we are missing the mark by about infinite amount. However you want to fill that in, infinite amount of missing the mark. Faith community, obviously a good thing. But if you just come to church every Sunday for your whole life, that's not getting you into heaven. There's a lot of church folk going to hell. I don't like to say something like that, but we got to hear it, right? We got to hear it. Religious obligation. <laughs> okay. To continue a family's religious traditions, I promise you religion's never gotten anybody closer to Jesus. Socialize, not bad. I like to do that. It's not Jesus. And to please a spouse, again, we're glad you're here. <laughs> but interestingly, this may back my point up a little bit more. I found a correlating statistic that as you go down the list of these things that are arguably wrong reasons to seek Jesus or to seek church or to seek religion, whatever you want to call it, that there is a correlating statistic that as you go down, those people that said these things are actually statistically way less likely to be committed and consistent in their faith. So as we seek Jesus for the wrong things, we're also way less likely to be consistent with it. 
because we're not finding what we're looking for because we're looking for the wrong things. And Jesus is getting at that here. And I think what we do, and I think we can both uh, apply this to ourselves first and foremost, but then think about people in our circles who we know do this, is we're already seeking things in life. Every single person, if you woke up breathing, you're seeking something. You might not know that about yourself, but you are. You're seeking after something. You want something with your life. You, you want to achieve things. You want to have certain successes. Whatever it may be, it could be comfort, pleasure, blessings, good health. You could just want some friends. You're seeking something. But then what we do is we come into this curiosity of Jesus, which is where this crowd's at, and I think some of us in our faith walks are at this curiosity stage of what's next. We come into a curiosity of Jesus, and then what do we do? We want the same things from Jesus that we were trying to find in life. The things that we were pursuing over here, we've just brought into this curiosity of Jesus and plopped it on his head and said, give me those things. But then the unfortunate truth of when we do that is God never promised us any of those things. So then we come into a curiosity of Jesus the same way this crowd had, and then what happens? We've just transferred these expectations so then what we expect from God, whether that's success or good health or comfort or blessings, when we don't get them, we feel let down by God. When God never promised those things, the real truth of the matter is we were just seeking him for the wrong things. How many people do we know in our circles who feel let down by God when they were not even looking to what God would actually ever said he would give them? How often have we done that? Whether we've been walking this thing again for 10 years or, or 400 years, and if you've been walking it for 400, I need your health routine. Like, what do you do <laughs> that you are still here rocking with us? But I think Jesus is warning both us and the crowd of this same thing. He says, you're seeking me for food, for fulfillment, for physical blessings, and he says, but do not work for those things. Instead, work for the food that endures to eternal life. He's saying if you work for that type of fulfillment, if you seek Jesus for physical blessings or comforts or a certain type of feeling, you're gonna miss me because I'm so much more than that. Don't seek me for the wrong reasons because when you seek me for the wrong reasons, you aren't gonna find who I really am. And that's why we have a world of people who think things about Jesus that aren't even close to who he actually is because they went to him for the wrong reasons from the get-go. And again, how often have we been that person? But in fact, very shortly here, he's about to call himself the bread of life, claiming he and he alone is what we truly need. So let's continue then. 28 through 43, 28 through 43. This is a, this is a chunk, but stick with me, all right? Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the good works of God? Pause, they're so, they're, it's curiosity. Like he says these things and they even ask, well, then what do we gotta do? Like, I'm interested, I'm curious. What do we have to do to be doing the works of God. And Jesus answered him, this is the work of God that you believe in him who has sent me. So they said to him, oh, y'all, we about to talk about this one. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Pause. The gall. <laughs> These people just watched 5,000 people be served with a couple buckets of food. And then they come to him. And when he's like, I'm the bread of life, they're like, well, what work do you perform? What sign do you give? <laughs> Y'all, just pause. You know how often we do this, though? I think we can all think about people in our circles who we look at their lives and like, God showed up to you in a million different ways. In fact, I invite you to church every week and you never come. I am your blessing. But how often do we do this? 
Like, do you know that if you woke up this morning with oxygen that you didn't create filling your lungs, you're blessed. A sign's been performed. If you had food on your plate, a sign's been performed. If you came to church, you probably had a car to get here. You're in a giant metal death trap, words, a metal death trap going 80 miles an hour around a bunch of other metal death traps, and you're here. Yet by 801, we're complaining about something. You've been blessed and, and sh been shown signs 500 times the minute you wake up. Yeah, we have the gall to go to God when we're doubting and be like, well, where you been? <laughs> what, 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 what do you show me? What do you have for me? Man, we be doing that. And that's exact. These people were no different than us, right? Let's keep going. Let's get, these people had some, pff, tell you what. So what sign do you perform that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And then they, continue, they try to, like, they try to like, like talk Jesus around scripture. He wrote scripture. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father, he gives the, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, Give us this bread always, again. They are so curious about what he's talking about. But Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Here are the parallels between how we talk to the disciples. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now listen to this, y'all. Listen to this. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, listen, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Boy, I am so intrigued, and if anything, almost like love, that God incorporates this into scripture because the crowd, us in so many ways, had seen this amazing miracle, and then Jesus takes the time to explain what it's all about, to claim who he really is, to claim this is why I did this, to show you that I'm all you need. I am the bread of life. And what do they do? They start to rationalize this truth based off their own knowledge and experience. They start to say, well, well wait a second. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and, fa mother, father and mother we know? Like, we've seen them. We've, like, done life with them. They're in our community. How can he possibly be from heaven? They rationalize, and they try to make logic of God. And I think the second don't statement is this. Don't let your earthly experience dictate how you view God. Don't let your earthly experience dictate how you view God. Let me explain. The, the crowd, again, our context, has literally just witnessed a miracle, but when push came to shove to believe Jesus, believe Jesus for who he says he was, which is the bread of life, the only thing that will fill you, the only thing that can save you, the way, the truth, and the life, they say, but wait, isn't this the son of Joseph? Like our experience says that you have two human parents 
And we know them, Mary and, Mary and Joseph. We, we've seen them. We know them. They let what they had gone through, they let what they think they understood dictate how in this moment they were viewing God and what God was saying to them. And how often do we do that? God says something to us. A, a person who loves the Lord comes to you and, and gives you some instruction. You read this book and it's got some hard stuff in it that doesn't really line up with your life. So rather than adjust your life, you try to adjust what the word says. And what do we do when we do stuff like that? We're saying, well, I've experienced this and I kind of think these things and this is where I've been and what I've done, so I'm gonna let that mold how I view God. What I've experienced temporarily here, I'm gonna let change how I view a God who's always been here. I'm gonna take my finite experience and apply it to an infinite God. And that sounds ridiculous to say out loud. I don't think any of us, when we're rationalizing how we view God, would ever say that out loud, but that's exactly what we're doing. And like, where, man, I just got to challenge us because y'all, I am an opinionated individual. So I do this. I know I'll be doing this. Where do we think we get off thinking that little us from York County, Pennsylvania, where there's more like cornfields than there are people, that we think our thoughts matter to who God is. <laughs> but we be doing that, man. We, we do it so often, even for us who have been walking this thing, daily decisions and what we choose to believe about hard things in here. And we say, well, I've, I've met this person who's kind of like this, so I don't know if this is right. Or I've, I've walked and experienced this, and it doesn't really line up with what this is saying to me, so I just don't know if I, if I believe that piece. And we're looking at God and saying, I know better than you. But that's what this crowd was doing. They literally just witnessed this miracle and they're letting their, their logic, their rationale, their understanding dictate how they're viewing it. And in this moment, even though they'd experienced firsthand how amazing Jesus is, they let their experiences dictate how they were choosing to see it. Almost, not even almost, to the point where even though they had just seen an amazing miracle, they're asking for another one. And I think a lot of us have seen God move in our life and how short term of a memory do we tend to have in things that God's done for us. He moves in crazy ways and a week later, we're not sure if it really happened. You know, that's because we have an enemy, right? Who wants you to forget the miracle so that when Jesus comes back around, you're asking the same old questions. That's why he says the word believe so much in here, but, but we continue. And I have to say, when I read this part of the passage, like it immediately struck me, and here's why. I think that this primary temptation is the exact reason so many people don't believe in God. Think about how many people you have in your circles that have said something to this effect. No need to raise your hands or whatever. You may if you'd like. It's a free country. But like, I'm gonna read some things, all right? Have you ever heard of this? If God's real, then why did this happen? Where was he when I was going through this? Well, at one point, I learned this, so this is what I believe. These Christians acted like this, so I can't rock with it. I've never seen or felt God maybe the way I expect to or the way somebody else did, so I'm not sure that he's real. I've seen religion abused, so I don't want anything to do with that. Or I grew up in a strict religious household, so I chose to walk away. And the list continues, but the principle in all of these things is the same. We let what we have or have not experienced decide what we think about God. And these people were doing the same, and what was it doing? It was making them miss it. Think about people in your circles or in your own seat. 
How often have we done this? Think about people in your lives that you know who, who regularly just try to rationalize God. They just try to understand God. They try to make God fit the narrative they want him to fit, and all of them miss it, don't they? I've never met a single person who's come into the Grove, uh, shout out our young adults, 18 and 25 year olds, Tuesday nights, all right? Uh, or Awaken, Wednesday nights, shout out, 6, 6.45 to 9, 7th to 12th graders. Um, I've never had any of them come in and, and have hard questions about God that I didn't immediately notice how it was a ton about what they thought. All their doubts had to do with what they thought about it. All of their doubts had to do with experiences they've walked through. And I'm not discounting that. That matters, but not when it comes to who God is. It matters because we love you and we want to walk alongside people in hard things or confusion or doubts because we all have that. But in the end of the day, one thing I'll never concede is that what you think about God dictates who God is. I'll never say that. And I will willingly to young people and you guys say to people's face, like, listen, I love you, but your doubts do not change God. Whether or not you believe God does not mean he's not still up there ruling and reigning and doing what he's been doing for all of eternity. And you've been here for 29 years and you think you know better than him. That's wild. <laughs> More cornfields than people around here. <laughs> Just kidding. I love York. That's why I'm here. All right. But if we, if we reference back in the same passage, let's touch a little bit of it really quick. Verse 29 says this, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who has sent me. Okay, let's fast forward a little bit. Same, same part of the passage, verse 40. It's the will of the Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So what we're doing when we, or people in our circles, and again, I think we all probably know people, what we're doing when we try to rationalize God or explain God or say why our experiences mean he can't be real, Jesus here is saying, first of all, he's saying, stop grumbling. Like he gets a little feisty. Like the next section we're gonna read, Jesus' voice is raised a little bit. Like I'm confident of it because of what he's saying. Like the, the context and, and like who he's saying to and what he's saying has changed. And I think he's, he's a little like, he's a little like, are you for real? Are you for real? I just fed 5,000 people, explained to you how I did it, and then the next thing you're gonna ask is where's the sign? I'd raise my voice too, appropriately, you know what I'm saying? Righteous anger, all right? But here's what, we're here's what he's saying to them when he says, hey listen, you're trying to rationalize me? Stop grumbling because it was never your job to explain me, it's your job to believe in me. It was never your job, my people in the room and my people all around the world, it was never our job to rationalize God. It was never our job to explain God. The word believe is in the Bible, the amount of times it is for a reason. It is our job to believe in God. And when we seek Jesus trying to explain him or rationalize him or make him fit in our little heads, when he created an expansive, massive, never-ending universe that we don't even know 0.01% of it, we're missing it because it's not our job to explain that. It's our job to believe it. The message from Jesus here is so relevant to us today because in a world that needs proof and whether or not we have that proof is totally dependent on our personal experiences and we let our influences and upbringings, etc., dictate how we view God. Jesus here is saying so clearly, you can't rationalize me. I don't line up with your logic. You don't get to decide who I am and what I am in your little finite brain when I'm an infinite God. You don't get that power and you'll never have it. And if you want to hold on to that power, you'll miss me. If you want to hold on to however you want to view me and what you think's right about me, you'll miss me. Because I'm the only truth. And there is only one truth, otherwise there's no truth. 
There's a reason Isaiah 55 says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than ours and your thoughts higher than ours. He wasn't messing around when he was like, hey, I, I love when you think things because I created you. I created your brain. I want you to think. I want you to explore. I want you to learn. I want you to grow. But no matter how much you grow, you can have the highest IQ on the planet. And there is still an infinite gap between my thoughts and your thoughts. And Jesus is relaying that message again here thousands of years after that was written. And then in the same breath, he tells us what we should do. Believe. He doesn't just say, stop grumbling, like, shut your mouths. He's like, believe. That's what you have to do. It's the work of God that we believe in the one he sent, whose name is Jesus, who died on a cross for your forgiveness of sins that you and I have committed. And by believing them, not only are we fully forgiven of those with no lashback, but then we can spend eternity with God forever. That's who we believe. That's what we believe. And we don't get to choose how we believe it. Jesus is being clear here. Believe when it's easy. When you're seeing God and he's doing big things in your life, believe then. Believe when it's hard and you don't feel like you're seeing him. Believe then. Believe when it's making total sense. Believe when it makes zero sense. Believe when your faith seems to line up with your experiences. And guess what? Believe when your experiences seem to point you in a different way. Believe. A.W. Tozer, who's a, a well-known Christian author and theologian, says the most important thing about a person is what they believe about God. Not your successes in life, not your failures in life, not how well you've done or how poorly you've done, what you think or what you don't think. The most important thing about you in the very short time you're here on earth is what you believe about God, what you believe about God, not what you decided about God, what you believe about him. Jesus is encouraging us here that if we want to come with him or to come to him, whether for the first time or in order to take that next step in our faith, we cannot let our earthly experiences dictate our view of God because he's so far above that. And then he continues in this passage, and I think he gives us one more don't statement that I think for many of us is going to be important to hear. So we're going to read verses 44 through 59. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. I love that. Everyone who has heard and learned from who? The Father. It does not say everyone who has learned and heard from that one person who has a lot of opinions on Facebook. Everyone who has learned and heard from that college professor that's hated God since day one, and they want you to feel the same way. I was a biology major. I met a lot of those. And I was tempted to believe them. It says, those who have learned and heard from the Father will be called to him. And they will come to him. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he is from, who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life because I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. <laughs> Let's pause for a second. Jesus is cheeky. This is one of the reasons I love Jesus. My man was not afraid to get after it. Earlier in the passage, what did this crowd try to throw at him? They're like, well, our, fa our, our fathers ate bread from heaven. So what bread do you show us? 
Like, where's the bread? And he says, in response, this is how we know he's getting a little feisty, which is why, y'all, when we read the Bible, it can be so exciting to read because if we read kind of like the context and who's saying what and how they're saying it, like, I want to read this feisty because Jesus is saying it feisty. Do you know what I mean? So I'm getting all amped up because I know Jesus is amped up. He says, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, yes. I want you to repeat this three-word phrase with me, and they died. (laughs) If y'all don't realize this is a little bit of a slap to the face in their logic, like they were trying to out-rationalize Jesus. They were trying to out-logic Jesus. And he's like, yeah, you're right. They did eat the man in the wilderness, and they died. (laughs) I feel like he said it with a little smirk on his face. And they died. So what's your point? Let's continue. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anybody eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews disputed among themselves. They're still grumbling. They're still being difficult, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? He, they were missing it. And we're going to talk about that for a second. So Jesus said to them, again, he's, he's a little tongue-in-cheek here. He's like, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the, Father, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me then, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Such a roundabout way to get there, but like he even said he spoke these ways on purpose. Why? Because he wanted people to seek him for the right reasons. That's why he talked in parables. He says that. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate. Making a clear delineation. You're looking for the wrong thing. You're seeking the wrong things. It's not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. We're going to focus primarily on 47 through 50. So 47 through 50, I'll read them quickly again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. It's a weird phrase to say, but you know, it's scripture. So this crowd was physically fed by him in an amazing way. And then they seek him, they pursue him, asking for more. And he says, listen, if you believe, you have eternal life because I am the bread of life. And I think the third way he's warning this crowd is this. Don't believe anything on earth can save you. The third don't statement, the third thing he's warning this crowd, because if they don't get it, they're not going to find him. He says, don't believe anything on earth can save you. Earlier in this passage, as he's explaining that he is the bread of God, he says it twice in this chunk of scripture. In verse 34, they even ask him, they say, sir, give us this bread always. They ask after they they sought him out, they were seeking him. And even after seeing a miracle, they were still seeking something physical, thinking it was what they needed. Even after seeing the son of man, like God in the flesh, the son of God, Jesus Christ, after seeing him do something that was not about the physical part of it at all, does this amazing miracle, they seek after him because of it, still seeking a physical need, thinking that's what they needed. And I think Jesus is warning them so clearly, the bread you're looking for can't save you, but I can. 
Like, like they're still asking for bread when it was never about the bread. He only said, I'm the bread of life because they came asking for bread. And we're going to break down kind of the idea of bread and, and the communion piece of it in, in a second. But like, had my mans walked up to Jesus and been like, where can we find these rubber duckies of life? He'd have been like, I am the rubber ducky of life. It's not about what he was saying he is. It's about saying, whatever you're seeking for, put me there. Right now you're looking for bread. I am the bread of life. You're looking for a cool pool to swim in. I am the cool pool of life. Like, you want a hot steak dinner tonight? I am the hot steak of life. It wasn't about the bread piece of it, which we get wrong sometimes, right? They were seeking something physical still, and God's saying, no, that's not what you need. I'm the only one who can save you. It's not about what you're searching for. It's about how you're searching for it. And we need to take those things we're searching for and replace it with Jesus, whatever it is for you, whatever it is for the people around us. Because what you need for salvation is what you need to know God, what you need to get to heaven and spend eternity with him is me, Jesus, nothing else. One of my favorite phrases is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus something equals nothing. Which is why it's so dangerous when we're uh, in the world or we're in our religious circles and we have these expectations or things that we think and then we come into a curiosity about Jesus and then we lump all those expectations on Jesus' head because then what we're saying is I want Jesus plus all these things I've added and that equals nothing. He says, if you do that, if that's how you seek me and that's why you seek me, you're gonna miss it. Maybe some of us in the room have never gotten this because we've sought Jesus with a whole bunch of add-ons that we put on there. Well, I only want Jesus if he gives me this, 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 and this. I only want Jesus if it, if it kind of makes me experience and feel this way. And because you've went about it that way, you've missed it. Maybe some of us who are in the faith who have been trying and we all fail. Let's just be really real about that. We all mess up. We all fail. We all fall short. The Bible tells us that. Maybe there's reasons we haven't grown to that next step uh, or we feel stagnant or we feel stuck in our faith. And the reason is because whether or not we know it, we've added a bunch of stuff we expect of Jesus. We, we, we've stopped making it just about him, about him being enough, enough. And, and when we put little additives onto Jesus and who we think he is or who we want him to be, that's when we start to miss it. That's when we start to seek him for the wrong reasons. That's when we're going to start to feel that stagnancy. That's when we're going to start to question things maybe we never questioned before. And it's because we've begun to add things when Jesus so clearly is saying, nothing else, only me. And it made me think about how many things we pursue in life that we think are going to do something for us. They think we're going to make us feel better. We think it's going to fix our situation. And, and whether or not we'd ever say it out loud, we treat these things like they can save us. And what are they for us? I mean, for some of these things that we might turn to, they're, they're bad, just to be frank. We, we turn to drugs or alcohol to save us. We turn to relationship to a relationship because we just need that fulfillment in Bhutan and that other person. We turn to sex. We turn to money. We turn to stuff. If I can just gain a little more, if I can just have that bigger house, if I can just have the nicer whip, then that's going to get me where I feel. Yeah. But then what do we always want? More. We always want more. We always want more. Anytime you want more, that's a never-ending deadly cycle. And Jesus is saying, there is no more. I'm it. That's why we can never add stuff to the gospel. We can never say, hey, you need Jesus plus this, because then when's more end? Oh, I got to do communion how many times a day for it to be enough? I got to go to church how many times a day for it to be enough? Well, okay, now I need more, because that might not be enough anymore, because that's what I've been doing. Jesus has always been enough. 
and will always be enough. And some of these things, though, listen, aren't inherently bad. Yet if we're real, we turn to them sometimes for salvation, therapy, medication, here, religion, marriage, traveling and experiences, pursuing comfort, not all inherently bad things, but when Jesus is taken out of the equation and these things become the thing that we seek more than anything else, they're empty wells. They're empty cisterns. They get us nothing, and then we just need more of it. And we just need more of it and more of it. And if we're honest, at times... We, we go thinking that it's going to fix something. We think it can save our situation. And Jesus is telling this crowd, it can't. You need to hear me, it can't. They're looking to him for another physical blessing. Even to the point of asking, like, whatever bread you're talking about, sir, give us this always. We like it. Give us, what are they saying? Give us more. Why? They're looking for the wrong thing. They don't realize Jesus is the more. There is no more than Jesus. And he's saying to them as they're saying that, Exactly. You're always looking for the next thing. You're always looking for the new fix. You're always looking for the next thing that saves you. You're always looking for that bread, whatever it is for you, and I'm it. Believing in me is it. There's a reason in this section of scripture alone, these 30 verses, it says the word belief six times. He doesn't say I'm the bread of life six times. He says, believe six different times. And what I think we can do, and we need to lean in for just a second. We can get, as a people, so desperate to find something here on earth to save us that there are even religious circles and denominations that from this passage, the, the eating of the flesh, the drinking of the blood, will teach you that if you don't have communion a certain way, or you don't have the Eucharist blessed by a priest, or that you don't go to a certain type of church, then the Holy Spirit isn't in you and you're not saved. I just want to touch this for a second because Jesus is screaming this in this passage. Hear me, no church building will save you. You will not ever walk into Grace Fellowship Church and get holy by walking through the doors. This is a building where the church meets. No church is ever going to save you. Family, no amount of priest-blessed bread can ever save you. Jesus is making that clear. How does he make it clear? Because he says, your father in heaven dropped manna on Moses' face straight out of his own hand, and they died. Why do you think he said that? That's not enough. God can give you a physical blessing from heaven. It's not enough. Then then how much more is a human blessing a, a, a wafer? Not enough to save you. It's Jesus. It's always been Jesus. And, and just because you don't go to this type of church or that type of church who says this versus the other, it's about Jesus. It's never been about any of those things. Genuinely believing in Jesus Christ as Savior saves you. God didn't want to make it complicated because he knew we're simpletons. We are a bunch of simpletons. He's like, I can't make it about all that extra stuff. They'd be getting everything wrong. So I didn't even make this real simple. Believe. And we still get it wrong. Look at verse 49 when he says that your fathers ate the manna and they died. He's screaming it like, bro, if that wasn't enough, why would anything else on earth be enough? What makes you think something else on earth could get the job done when the rest of Scripture, Romans 10, 9, what does it say? Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. Period. It doesn't have any addendums onto there. We have to read scripture. We have to take passages like this, which can be controversial and they can be hard to understand for all of us. But we have to read every piece of scripture with the whole in mind. And if we break down a scripture in a way that doesn't line up with the rest of the things Jesus said, we need to realize we're breaking it down wrong. 
But I think outside of maybe that tough topic, we need to introspect. One thing we're big here at Grace is we can't, you can't change the person to your left. You can't change the person to your right. You can't change mom, dad, auntie, uncle, kids. You can't change any of them. You can change you. And the best way to change other people is them to see you change. So I think we need to introspect and we need to think as we close out here, what are the things we turn to the most in hard times? What are the things we turn to the most in good times? And whether or not we would say it, what are the things that we sometimes treat like it can save us? Like it can fix something that we can say like, oh, I did this so I feel better about myself. When Jesus said, I'm the only one who brings that. I'm the only one who can actually do it. I'm the only one who ever said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and it was right. And can we acknowledge today that Jesus is warning both this crowd and now instructing us that believing in Jesus is truly the only way to salvation. He is the bread of life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So I think Jesus is telling us three things this morning that we're going to walk out with. The first is this. Don't seek me for the wrong reasons or you're going to miss me. Let's take today to introspect a little bit. And what have we been seeking Jesus for that he never promised us? And let, ask this question to yourself. Has it done anything for you? The second thing he's telling us not to do is don't let your experiences dictate how you view me. Maybe you've walked through hard things. A lot of us have. Maybe you've been through people who didn't believe what we believe and they've told you some stuff and hey, that's going to happen. We've all had that. Maybe you've had some personal experiences not a lot of people know about and it just makes, it questions how you view, maybe you haven't had the experiences you've been looking for. And can we just today take the weight off our shoulders and say this, our opinion of God never mattered to God. Our doubts of who God is never changed who he was. He has been the same since day one. We are only here for a blink of an eye. How dare we think what we think somehow dictates who he is. Don't let your experiences dictate how you view me. And then lastly, don't believe anything here can save you, whether that's a worldly thing or a religious thing. Some of you might have that type of religious background. And I hope you're hearing what I'm saying, and this is coming straight from here. Some of you have like world, maybe I have more of a worldly background, man, where I was all in all kinds of stuff. You know what I'm saying? And I had to realize like that stuff can't save me. That's not, that's not doing anything for me. There's only one person who ever is. And can I tell you, since I started following him, everything has been infinitely better. And I don't just mean happiness or comfort or whatever, but there is a fulfillment in my soul that none of that stuff ever brought. It's available to you and me this morning. So as we close, fittingly, we're going to sing the song, Jesus, You Alone. And we're going to declare that it is truly Jesus you alone. It's not Jesus plus something because Jesus plus something is nothing. It is literally Jesus. Additives none gives us everything. So I'm gonna ask that you guys stand and repeat these things after me as we sing Jesus you alone. Say this with me. Jesus, you are the bread of life and you alone can save We hope you enjoyed this message. You can find more like it on our website under sermons. To keep up to date with our sermon series, hit the subscribe button in your podcast host and follow our social media pages. Just search for GFC Shrewsbury on the platform of your choice. If you're looking to connect with us further, then you can email us at connect at gfcshrewsbury.org. We will be back next week with another message. We hope to see you again soon.